Right, you can turn in your Bible to Malachi chapter 2. We've been coming through the book of Malachi together. If you don't have one of the study guys, you can throw a hand up and any extras we can take back to you. We're going to be chapter 2, verse 17, into chapter 3, verse 5 today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word, your precious word, precious light. You said the unfolding of your word gives light and gives understanding to the simple. And God, we are those people that need understanding. And we confess to you, Lord, as you already know, that had you not given us your word, we'd be lost, we'd be unwise, be ignorant, Lord. God, we praise you, we praise you, God, for your word. God, help us now as we set our meditations on what this prophet of yours, what he preached, what he proclaimed. And God, I pray you'd help us to walk away with hearts filled with faith in you and hearts filled with worship towards you. Help us to listen, God, as those who listen under the authority of your word. God, I praise you that you have not set us here as a time of entertainment as a time to be entertained but God you have set us here under the authority of the scriptures and so God we just say from the front end that we we want to submit God we want to submit to your word we want to bend the knee God before your word God I pray that you would help us Lord help me to preach your word and the ability which, with which you supply and help all of us here, Lord, to hear your word with the ability that you supply. Now we bring these things before you in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, quick review as we get ready to head into this passage. Uh, Malachi is a prophet. He's a mouthpiece of God sent to proclaim truth and prophecy to the people of Israel. Now he's preaching to, as you know, a post-exile people, a people that are about 400 years before Christ actually entered in, before the Son of God actually entered into this earth as a man. And up to this point in the book of Malachi, here's what we know so far. We know that these people have begun to doubt uh, certain characteristics of God. For example, in chapter 1, they are doubting the love of God. We know thus far in the book of Malachi that their leadership and the, the leadership amongst the people of Israel is an unfaithful, faithless leadership that are not honoring God. We know that they're coming to God not with hearts full of worship to Him, but they have a shell of religion and they're offering up 
half-hearted worship to God. They're bringing sacrifices to him that they would not even give to their governor. They love politics more than God. And we see that all this, all this false worship of God has begun to bleed into their relationships as they, they've been faithless in their marriages, faithless in their families, even to the point of divorce and marrying into the, the daughters of false gods and being unconcerned about godly offspring. It's begun to enter into their, their family and their faith as they're a faithless people. And these are the people that Malachi is preaching to. And so in Malachi chapter 2, verse 17, <clears throat> we see a disputation here. Now, as I said earlier, uh, there are several of these disputations, as we call them, all throughout the book of Malachi. So the way it all started off in chapter 1 was, was God told these people, I've loved you. And they disputed that. And they say, how have you loved us? He says, but you say, how have you loved us? And God answers their question. When we, say, we see a similar thing here. In chapter 2, verse 17, we see a disputation, and we need to understand this very clearly. So let's read chapter 2, verse 17 together, and I want us to understand the argument here very clearly. <clears throat> you have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Where is the God of justice? So it says here that they have wearied God with their words. The God that does not get tired is tired of the things that they're saying. They've wearied God with their words. Well, how? What did they say? And we get two phrases in verse 17. Two phrases. One is a statement and one is a question. And these words, this statement and this question represent the words that these people are speaking or the thoughts that they're thinking that God is tired of it. He's fed up with it. And them thinking and speaking in this sort of way. So I want you to understand these two phrases. If you understand these two phrases, it's very crucial to you understanding what follows in chapter 3, verse 1 through 5. Now, there's a very well-known prophecy about Jesus in chapter 3, verse 1. But what I want to ask you is, do you understand that very well-known prophecy about Christ? Do you understand it in light of, as a response to chapter 2, verse 17, and these questions, or this statement that's here? you understand chapter 3, verse 1 through 5 in light of chapter 2, verse 17? So let's compare these two phrases. They've wearied God, and what are they saying? They're saying this. First phrase, it's a statement. Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Do you, does that sound like your God? Does that sound like the God that you serve? That he looks at everyone that does evil and he says, they're good and God delights in evildoers. And that's the slander that they're putting before God. Does that sound like your God? And I hope you say no. It doesn't sound like my God. My God does not delight in evil. He doesn't delight in sin. And yet, that's what they're saying about God here. Now compare that to the second phrase. They say, where 
is the God of justice. These are slanderous thoughts about God. This God, he, he looks at evildoers and he considers them good. In fact, he delights in them. Where's the God of justice? Justice, this idea that God, justice, God will do what's right. He will right every wrong. He'll punish every sin. All injustice will be dealt with. And they're saying, where's the God of justice? And having problems here. They see themselves. They don't see their own sin. They don't understand their own sin. And yet they see themselves in, in this impoverished state, in this, this state where God doesn't seem to be hearing them. And they're saying it's not right because they can't see their own sin. They look up at the wicked, the pagans that worship false gods, and they, they see them prospering. They're actually prospering even though they hate God. They don't believe in the one true God. And they say, where's the God of justice? To bring down justice on these oppressors. Do you, you understand the disputation here? Now again, why, why, would they, why would they feel these sort of slanderous thoughts about God? Why would they feel this way? And I want to show you what I just said. I want to show you that in the book of Malachi. Why would they feel like God is not a God of justice and question Him in this way? Two verses. Look back to chapter 2, verse 13. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Do you hear that? They know something's wrong. They know something is wrong. They are weeping and groaning and they know God is not accepting them, but they don't see their own sin. So why do they feel this way about God? Because they don't see their own sin. They think they're being done wrong. God's not being just to them. They can't see their sinfulness. Look forward to chapter 3, verse 15. The last phrase, chapter 3, verse 15. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. So why do they have these thoughts? Why are they saying, where's the God of justice? Because they see the evildoers prospering. They look at the evildoers that shouldn't be receiving the justice of God. And rather, they're prospering. They said, it's not right. Where's the God of justice? And that's their plea. Where's the God of justice? Now, this sort of problem... This idea of looking up and seeing evil prospering and wondering why is this so? I look out into my world and I see injustice. It seems like injustice reigns on this earth. That's a legitimate question. It's a legitimate thing to wrestle through. We see men and women, all it's literally all over the Bible where they're wrestling through that idea. We see it in Psalm 10. We see it in Psalm 73. In Psalm 10, the psalmist is saying, and yet he's filled, he's filled with faith. And he, knows, he knows God's going to do what's right. And yet he says, God, the wicked are prospering. Those who oppress others are prospering, God. Break the arm of the wicked, O God. In Psalm 73, the psalmist says that his feet almost slipped. He almost slipped up because he was jealous of the wicked. He looked at them prospering and he, was, he, he didn't understand. And his feet almost slipped until he considered their end. And he realized that they were in slippery places. And they were soon to be doomed to death and even hell forever. 
We see it in the book of Job as Job is, is dealt with and all this, all this hardship comes down on Job and he begins to deal with his same problem. Why am I being dealt with like this and why are the wicked prospering? We see the same thing in Habakkuk chapter 1 and you could go on and on and we see it here in these people. Now, there's a good and godly and right way to wrestle through that sort of question. And we see that throughout the word of God. But that's not what we see in Malachi. In Malachi, these words have wearied God. They are not speaking in faith. They are slandering God. You are a God that actually delights in the wicked. Where is the God of justice? These people are sinfully dealing with this sort of question. Now, how is God going to answer them? How is God going to answer this accusation and this question? Well, chapter 3 Verse 1 through 5, it answers that question. Where is the God of justice? It answers that question by saying, Jesus is coming. In chapter 3, verse 1 through 5, where is the God of justice? Jesus is coming. What we see in chapter 3 of Malachi is the clearest prophecy of Jesus in the whole book. It's the clearest prophecy of Jesus. So I want you to listen as we read. Twice in verse 1, it's going to say, Behold. Behold, it means listen up. Listen to the answer to the question. Chapter 3, verse 1 through 5. Behold, I send my messenger. The New Testament tells us that's John the Baptist. I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. The New Testament tells us that's Christ. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant, that's Christ, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He'll sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he'll purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old as in former years then I will draw near to you for judgment I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers against the adulterers against those who swear falsely against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages the widow and the fatherless against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do and do not fear me says the lord of hosts so the answer to the question is christ jesus is coming the messiah is coming and he's going to do some things he's coming now, why do I say this passage is about Jesus? Because the New Testament very clearly tells us that that first messenger, behold, I send my messenger to prepare the way before me. That verse is directly quoted in the New Testament as referring to John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus. Abundantly clear, we're talking about Christ as the messenger of the covenant, that second messenger, the messenger of the covenant. We're talking about Jesus here. Now, those verses... For you guys to see, write some things down. Matthew 11.10, Mark 1.1, and Luke chapter 7, verse 27. All three of those places in the New Testament refer 
So this passage, quote this passage, is referring to Christ. John the Baptist and Christ. Now, that's an interesting answer, right? So the question is, where's the God of justice? It looks like he delights in the wicked. Where's the God of justice? Now, isn't this an interesting answer? Jesus is coming. Now, now, typically, we expect that answer to be the answer of different questions. Like, where's the God of forgiveness? Jesus is coming. And that would be right. Where's the God of mercy? Where's the God of love? Jesus is coming. And we would expect that answer. But do you expect this? This tends to be unexpected for people in this culture. Where's the God of justice? And he says, Jesus is coming. The Messiah is coming. The messenger of the covenant is coming, he says. Now, is this, is this referring to the first coming of Jesus that's already passed? Or the second coming of Jesus, which is to come. Which coming of Jesus are we talking about? The first one or the second one? And I would commend to you that it's both. We're talking about both. So, for example, the first coming. Verse 1 clearly tells us. The New Testament tells us. This is John the Baptist leading the way for Christ in his first coming. We also read in verse 2 through 4 that he's going to purify a people for himself. He's going to purify people for himself. That is, this happened, that can't happen without the first coming. But then also we're talking about the second coming. You see it in verse 2. He says, when he comes, who can endure it? Who can stand before his coming? And in verse 5 it says, he's coming to judge. And he's going to judge those that don't fear God. So we've got the first coming and the second coming as sort of a blended reference in this prophecy by Malachi. Just to help you maybe understand that, or, or at least to illustrate thinking through that, imagine looking at a timeline, and you got a timeline, and you're above it, and you're looking at that timeline, and you can see this point in history and this point in history. Or you can see this point in the future, if your timeline went out to the future, this point in the future, and this point in the future. And that's looking from above. But you imagine, this is the way these prophets prophesied. This is the way these prophets that were called seers, this is the way they saw. It's like they're on the timeline and they're gazing down the barrel of that timeline and they see a point in the future and another point, not so much the distance or a gap in between them, but they see the whole of what is to come. They see a blended reference to the future. One person explained it like this. Imagine... Seeing two beautiful mountains off in the distance. Just beautiful, beautiful mountains. And you see their mountain peaks. Now what you can't see from your perspective is the distance between one and the other. Just looks like two mountain peaks side by side, both beautiful. That's the way the, this prophet Malachi and many, pro, and many of the prophet, many of the prophetic words throughout the Bible is the way they look to the future. Like seeing these two beautiful mountain peaks, blended reference of the future. Now remember that. That's going to come up again here in just a little bit. Now, question that's on your study guide there. How does the coming of Jesus, you need to answer this question. How does the coming of Jesus answer the question in chapter 2, verse 17? It looks like he delights in the wicked. Where's the God of justice? Well, how does the coming of Jesus answer that question? In what way does it answer and that question. I just want you to notice a few things. Look at verse 2. Chapter 3, verse 2. You got two questions here. So when he comes, it says, But who can endure 
the day of his coming. Number one. Number two. And who can stand when he appears? In other words, where's the God of justice? He's come, Christ is coming, and who can survive it? Can you? Imagine being the people in Malachi's day asking that question, where's the God of justice? And God says, Jesus is coming, the Messiah is coming, but who's going to be able to stand? Can you? And why is it no one can endure? Why is it no one can survive? Because all of us have sinned and we deserve God's wrath. So when he comes, we are wrath-deserving people. Who can stand in that day? Who can endure in that day? So they say, where is the God of justice? In other words, when will you send God? When will you send the Messiah to, to, to judge the evil, to bring down wrath on evil? When will you do that? And the answer given is the Messiah is coming. But you need to think about this. Who can stand? Can anyone? And then the rest of the passage, I want you to see this. Here's what happens. As you read, continue on in verse 2, all the way to verse 5, you get two groups of people. Two categories of people are put before us. A purified people of God and a judged people, condemned and judged people. So two groups of people are put before us. In verse 2 through 4, we've got the purified people of God. And in verse 5, we've got the judged or condemned people. Now notice it doesn't say this. It doesn't say... Where's the God of justice? Jesus is coming, and he's going to separate the good from the bad. It doesn't say that. And why doesn't it say that? Because there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who does good. So he's not coming. When you think of justice, he's not coming. He, he did not come to separate the good from the bad. There is no good. But rather, it's just these two categories. The purified, those who are sinful and able to be made pure by God, by Christ. And the sinful that ignore Christ and go to hell in judgment. There's two categories of people that are put before us in verses 2 through 5. So I want you to think about, it like, think about this whole passage like this. Jesus is coming to put the justice of God on display by purifying a people for himself and by judging the rest. Jesus is coming to put the justice of God on display by purifying the people for himself and by judging the rest. Now, as you kind of see that structure, there's some details I want us to deal with in this passage. So I want you to think about these details with me, okay? So if you start off in verse 2, the second part of verse 2, or 2b, to verse 3, we see this talk about, G, about, about him coming as a refiner, like a purifier of silver. And it says, like, fuller soap. Now, what's the idea there? What, what does it mean? It's, it's this idea that it, it's, it's like he's coming as a purifier. He's coming as a refiner. It's, it's the, the silver has dross all over it, and you put it into the fire, and it burns the dross off, and it comes out as a new piece, a clean, a purified piece of metal. He's giving you this sort of illustration of what he, what he comes to do to his people. And it says like a like fuller soap. It's this idea that this soap that was used by a, another translation says a launderer. So, so soap is meant to, to clean or whiten linen, whiten clothing. He's coming like that. He's coming as, as a purifier. One of the 
one of the commentaries, let me read this. It reads like this. The purpose of the refiner was not to destroy, but to purify. And the fuller soap was applied in order to whiten cloth. The beauty of this picture is that the refiner looks into the open furnace and knows the process of purifying is complete and the dross is all burnt away when he can see his image plainly reflected in the molten metal. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Beautiful picture. It's illustration of the year. He comes to purify a people for himself. Now, continue on in verse 3 and 4 because I want to make sure you understand these, these little details. I'll trip you up. In verse 3 and verse 4, it says, And he will purify, and it specifically mentions the sons of Levi. He will purify the sons of Levi, refine them like gold and silver, and they'll bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering, listen, then, then it, it brings it out to the whole nation. Not only the sons of Levi, but then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. Now, I want you to, I want you to understand why, is it, why does it mention the sons of Levi? Why does it mention here Judah and Jerusalem specifically? Because here's the way I'm presenting this passage to you. I think you should view verse 2 through 4 as a broad a broad definition of God purifying a people to himself. Not just those sons of Levi that are directly here in Malachi, but, but you need to hear it in a broad sense of God is purifying a people to himself from all over the world. Now, now, now why I say that? Because well, right here it says he's, he's purifying the sons of Levi, right? He's bringing a... a, a, a a good offering that's coming out of Judah and Jerusalem. So why does it seem specific like that? Is that the way we should think about it? And I want you to say, no, it's not the way we should think about it. The Messiah, that's not the only reason, but for one reason, the Messiah did come and the nation didn't accept him. The nation rejected him. We're not talking about a nationwide turn back to God from the people of Israel here. So here's the way I want you to think about this. If you remember how I said the way the prophet is seeing into the future, He's looking down the barrel of that timeline. And what, what does he see? He sees that Messiah, the messenger of the covenant, who has come. And he's come and he sees that remnant that were saved. His followers, the apostles and thousands of others that were ripped out of darkness into light that became the true people of God. He sees that. He sees the, the, the true Israel. He sees that. He sees uh, Romans 2 says he's not a Jew who's one outwardly, but he's a Jew who is one inwardly. That the church is called the Israel of God. And he sees that all the way into the future where Christ has purified a people for himself, the Israel of God. I want you to see this in a broader sense, not just specifically the sons of Levi here. Now, one more detail I want you to notice before we move on. Notice how it goes from a purified people. And then you get to verse 5 and it, and it mentions a people that he will judge. Then... I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers. And it goes on and begins to name their sins. And so he moves from, I'm going to purify people for myself. And there's going to be a people that are judged. So two categories of people. So again, how does chapter 3 verse 1 through 5, Jesus is coming. How does that answer the question of chapter 2, chapter two verse 17? Where is the God of justice? Think about it. 
Where is the God of justice, they say? Jesus is coming, and none can stand before him, but he will purify people to himself and put his justice on display. We'll talk about that more in a minute. He, he will judge the rest. He'll rain down condemnation and judgment on those who reject him and therefore put his justice on display. He will do that. That's the answer to their question. Now, let's do this. I want us to understand what this passage says about Jesus. What exactly does Malachi 2.17 through 3.5, what does it tell us about Christ? And you see on your study guide there, I've got six points I want us to walk through quickly. Number one, what does this passage tell us about Jesus? Number one, Jesus is king. He's king. We see it in verse one as it talks about the one that was sent before Jesus the messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. John the Baptist is spoken of here like one. It's the language of one that goes before a king. He's a herald. He's a herald that goes before King Jesus. He's the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. He's that voice. He's going before King Jesus. And all throughout our Old Testament, we hear about that Messiah that's coming. He's going to be a king. It said it in Genesis 49 that the scepter would never depart from Judah. God said it as a promise to King David. The one coming through your lineage is going to be king forever. And Jesus is that king. Number two, Jesus is the God-man. And again, we can see that in verse one. He's the God-man. Look at verse one. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Now, we know from the New Testament, the me is Jesus. We know from Matthew 11, the me is Jesus. But, but according to Malachi, if you keep reading into verse 1, who is the me here? And he says, it's the Lord of hosts. So the Lord of hosts is saying, I'm going to send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. He is God. The Lord of hosts took on flesh in Christ. Where else do you see it? Look at the next line. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come. It's the Lord. It's me, the Lord of hosts. It's the Lord who will come. Keep going. He will come to his temple. It's his temple. Who does it belong to? It's God. It's God's temple. It belongs to him. So these three words, me, Lord, and his temple tells us that Jesus is the God man. Jesus took on flesh. He, Jesus is fully man, but he's not merely man. He is fully God. You see it all over the Gospels. If you, if you read through the Gospels or, 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 in, or if, you're, if you live in that time period and you're sitting there and, and you're like Peter, you're walking with Jesus. He was a man. He ate. He slept. If he stubbed his toe, it would bleed. He was a real man. And yet you see his godness flowing out of him as he tells the, the storm to be quiet and it just stops. As he walks on water, as he raises the dead, as he heals the sick, and he's showing himself to be God incarnate. He's God in the flesh. So Jesus is not only king, but he is the God man. Number three, and I love this. Verse one says, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming. So Jesus is the messenger of the covenant. Beautiful, beautiful title for Christ. 
Think about it with me. He's the messenger of the covenant. He's, he was a messenger. Now, he's not a little M messenger like the priest, you know, in, in chapter 2. that went, went before, they called the messengers of God. He's not a little M messenger like the priest or like the prophets. He is the messenger. He's a sent one with a message. We see it in John chapter 3, verse 16 to 17. God so loved the world, he gave his only son to whoever believes in him, will not perish but have everlasting life. God did not send him, send him into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He's a sent one. God did not send him. He sent him to save. He sent him to rescue. So he's a messenger. He, he's a messenger that comes with a message. So what message does he come with? Right here it says he's a messenger of the covenant. So he comes with the message of the covenant. Now the covenant, if you're not used to using that phrase, the covenant is like a, a covenant is like a binding agreement between two or more parties that, that allow them to enter into this, not casual relationship, but covenantal relationship. Think like a marriage. Uh, we saw that in Malachi 2. Malachi 2 said, she is your wife by covenant. You make these vows to one another, these promises to one another, and you enter into this relationship. It's not like others. It's, a, it's not a casual relationship, but it's a covenanted together relationship. So, so, so he came and says with a message of the covenant. What covenant? What covenant did he come with? The eternal covenant. Hebrews 13, 20, beautiful verse, speaks about the blood of the eternal covenant covenant. Think with me. The blood of the eternal covenant. It, it is eternal. It's eternal. It's, it's, it's a covenant that exists and began outside of time. It's an eternal covenant. I want you to think about this. The eternal covenant and agreement so, so you've got our triune God, one God. We worship one God. There's only one God, and yet three persons in the one God. Not, not three gods, but three persons in one God is what the Scripture teaches, mind-blowing. And, and, and you imagine this eternal covenant where this, there's this agreement between the three persons of the Godhead to what they're going to do. And you see it all of the scriptures. The father agrees and sends the son as the son agrees and honors the father as the Holy Spirit is sent by the son. And you see this merging together, this agreement between the persons of the tri, the one triune God. This eternal covenant, this, this covenant that began and exists outside of time. Now, you know, you, you know, different places in the Bible where we get insight into these triune, inner triune conversations. Remember that in Psalm 2 or in Psalm uh, 110, the Lord, that's the father, said to my Lord, that's the son, sit at my right hand so your enemies are made your footstool. And we're getting insight into these conversations that don't even exist in time. The Lord said to my Lord. And so to get an understanding of this, this eternal covenant that happens outside of time between God, the father and God, his son. Let me give you a little illustration. It's not from me, but a man named John Flavel. Uh, he, he uh, a faithful pastor from the 1600s. He wrote this, uh, this thing that many people have called the Father's Bargain. And I want you to imagine this happening outside of time. Something like this, okay? This eternal covenant. He said this, God the Father says, My son... Here's a company of poor, miserable souls. 
that have utterly undone themselves and now lie open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them or will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. What shall be done for these souls? And God the Son says, Oh, my Father, such is my love to and pity for them that rather than they shall perish eternally, I will be responsible for them at their surety. Bring in all thy bills that I may see what they owe thee. Bring everything, bring everything that they owe you, Father. Lord, bring them all in that there may be no after reckonings with them. Bring in all that they owe me so that I might pay it all and there's nothing left to pay at the end. At my hand shalt thou require it. I will rather choose to suffer thy wrath than they should suffer it. My Father, upon me be all their debt. And God the Father says, But my son, if thou undertake for them, thou must reckon to pay to the last might. Expect no abatements. I'll hold nothing back. If I spare them, I will not spare you. And God the Son says, Content, Father. Content, Father, let it be so. Charge it all upon me. I'm able to discharge it. And though it prove a kind of undoing to me, though it impoverish all my riches and empty all my treasures, yet I am content to undertake it. Isn't that a beautiful picture of this eternal covenant forward between Father and Son before time began? That he's going he's gonna to do something with these people, the blood of the eternal covenant, that he would purify people to himself. He comes, Jesus comes as the messenger of that covenant. Now, the eternal covenant was struck before time began. It connected with mankind through promises that we see scattered all throughout history. They're recorded for us in our Bibles. For example, Genesis chapter 3, right after man falls into sin, there's a promise that there's coming one, a Messiah, a Christ, who will crush Satan's head. And there's our promise. And all of a sudden, that eternal covenant connects with mankind. And it leaks out in promises and prophecies and signs and symbols all through Old Testament history until the Christ comes and seals it with his own blood. We get prophecies like there's one coming that's going to be wounded for our transgression and crushed for our iniquities. There's one coming and it's going gonna, it's gonna to please the Father to crush him, Isaiah 53.10, to crush him instead of us. It comes out through signs and symbols as you take a lamb and you slaughter that lamb for your sin. And of course that didn't do anything. It's just the leaking out of this eternal covenant that there is a lamb of God that will be slaughtered. He'll be crucified in our place so that we don't have to be. So Christ comes, all, all the Old Testament uh, prophecies and promises and, and, and the signs and the symbols. It's like the tremors and, and the earthquakes before the volcanic explosion of Christ. And he comes onto the scene 
In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Praise to the living God. And he comes as messenger of the covenant. He speaks that message that you can be reconciled to God. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And nobody comes to the Father except through me. You can be reconciled through me. And he seals it with his blood. That verse we read a moment ago, Matthew 26, verse 28. It speaks about the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is the messenger of the covenant. Number four, Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of God's justice. Now remember, same thing we've been saying. 2.17, where's the God of justice? Chapter 3, Jesus is coming. Okay? So he's the ultimate fulfillment of God's justice. Now we see this in his first coming, and we see this in his second coming. We see God's justice on display in his first coming through the cross, and in the second coming through the judgment. But in both places we see his justice on display. Now I want you to think about that through the cross for just a minute. Do you view the cross that way? If I said to you, okay... Tell me the ultimate place where you can see the forgiveness of God. Surely you would say, look at the cross. If I said, tell me the ultimate place where you can see the love of God. Surely you would say, look at the cross. God showed his love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. But what if I said, where can I see the ultimate display of God's justice? Where would you point me? Would you point me to the cross? Because you should, because I want you to think about this. God has forgiven Abraham. God has forgiven David. God has forgiven you, many of you here. He's forgiven you. How can he do this? It's evil. Is God delighting in evil? Is that what he's doing when he lets you go free? When he forgives you, is he just delighting in evil? How can he do this? And listen to me. The cross is the vindication of God's justice. Your sin laid on Jesus at the cross so that God will pour out his justice on all sin. You're not just set free and your sin is swept under the rug. No, no, no. You were set free because Christ absorbed the justice of God for you. You can go read about this in Romans chapter 3, verse 21 and following where it says Jesus is put forth as a propitiation for our sins by his blood. He's put forth as the propitiation, his payment for our sins by his blood in order to put his righteousness on display. Because God in his forbearance had passed over the sins that were previously committed. How can you do that, God? Are you unjust? And he says, but he sent Christ as the propitiation to show his justice. That he might be, it says in Romans 3, the just, that he might be the just and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. So that's God's justice in the cross. What about God's justice in the final judgment? We see it in Malachi 3.5. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. This is where God pours out his righteous wrath. His just wrath is poured out on every single sin that had not been laid on Christ. And he's going to put his judgment on display there. When it's all said and done, eternity, eternities, into the future, we will all say, our God is just. 
He is just. And he has put it on display. by He, he is just and that he is put, his wrath has touched every single sin. His wrath has touched every single injustice, every single act of evil. His wrath has touched it all. Either on his son at the cross or at the final judgment. Our God is just. Number five, Jesus is the purifier of his people. We see that in Malachi 3, 2 through 4, as we've already read. He's the purifier of his people. So Jesus has a people, and he purifies them. Let me give you a New Testament cross-reference. In Titus chapter 2, I'm going to read verse 11 through 14. Listen to this. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. That's good news. Training us. So the grace of God that brings salvation is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. All right, what about the age to come? Waiting for our blessed hope, the glorious appearing of, excuse me, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ is the second coming who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. And listen to what he did. He came to redeem us, and it says, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works, to purify for himself a people. God's a purifier of his people. It's what he does. Now, all who repent, who truly repent and believe in Christ, are the purified people of God. Um, question is, how does he do it? How does God, let's quickly talk about how God purifies his people. How does he do it? Well, he purifies your record. He purifies your heart. He purifies you progressively. And he purifies you finally. And if you want to put systematic theology language on it, he justifies you, regenerates you, sanctifies you, and glorifies you. This is what he does. I want you to think about that for just a minute. He purifies the records of his people. Talking about justification. He purifies that sinful, criminal record that you have before God. And he wipes it clean in forgiveness and justification. Listen to Colossians chapter 2 verse 13. You who were dead in trespasses God made alive together with him. Having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Purifies your record. Praise to the living God. He purifies the hearts of his people. Regeneration. He purifies our hearts. Ezekiel chapter 36 verse 25 speaks about God is going to sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. He'll give you a new heart. He'll take out the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and you might obey him. He purifies the hearts of his people. He purifies them progressively. That's sanctification. Ephesians 5 25 says Christ loved his church. And he gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her by the washing of water with the word. It's a progressive thing where Christ sanctifies, purifies his people. And also he purifies them finally. Glorification. 1 John 5.2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be 
has not yet appeared, but here's what we know. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Glorified, conformed to the image of Christ, sin done away with forever, fully and finally purified. Now, isn't that an amazing thought to think about? God has a people for himself that he has purified, that he's done all of this with. God has a people. Number six, Jesus is the righteous judge. He's the righteous judge. You see that again in verse five. He's a righteous judge. And I want you to see this, that God, Christ's judgment, God's judgment, is not something that's just outside of himself. Okay? It's not just outside of himself. But he actually draws near his presence for judgment. Listen to what it says here in verse 5. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. This is the terrifying presence of God. The nearness of God is not everybody's good. If you're in Christ, it is your good. But the nearness of God is not everyone's good. There is a terrifying presence of God in judgment. We read about this in Revelation chapter 6. And I want you to hear this. And you tell me, do you notice any similarities between here and Malachi chapter 3? Revelation 6.15 says this. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, all these people, can you see them? What are they doing? They hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Why are they hiding themselves? And they're calling out to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the wrath, from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Hide us from the wrath of Jesus. Hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. For the day of their wrath has come. And listen, and who can stand? Sound familiar? Malachi 3.2, who can stand? Jesus is a righteous judge. And it goes on to say here in Malachi 3.5 that he will be a swift witness. A swift witness. Can you imagine that? You enter into a court of law and you think nobody saw you, that you got away with your crime, and here come three eyewitnesses to condemn you. And you imagine this. The omniscient one who knows all things. The omnipresent one before whom you have never escaped his presence. Not for one moment. The God of Psalm 139 that knows the words you speak before they come out of your mouth. That know your thoughts from afar. And he says, I will be the swift witness against you in that last day. No sin will go unpunished. No sin will be forgotten. It's a horrific judgment of God. For those who don't have Christ. So Jesus is the righteous judge. Now I want us to close out our time by thinking through a very, very, very important question. Please lean in. Examine yourself. And think about this question with me. With God, where is the God of justice? Christ has come. He's purifying the people for himself. And he's going to judge the people. And through these things, the justice of God will be put on display. So let me ask you this question. Very important. 
Are you a part of the purified people of God? Or are you a part of the those that are condemned to judgment? And in which two of these categories? Two categories. There is no third category. So if you say, I don't, I don't fit in either one of those, it's not true. You fit in one. There's no third category. Okay? All of sin, all of sin falls short of the glory of God. The only thing that exists is either the purified people of God or those that are going to be condemned in judgment. That's it. Into which category do you fall? To which one of these categories do you land? Now, I really want you to listen up. You know, there, there's several things. When the word of God is preached, when the word of God is read, there's several things that can be happening. You fit into one of these categories. Either, you know, Christians get built up by the word of God. So they hear the word and, 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 and they get built up by the words of God. So that's what happens with Christians. Or somebody here, you could be here today and you could be lost, but you're drawn into the truth of the gospel and God's going to save your soul through this. Or you could be completely tuning me out right now. And I want you to know something. God's word is not ineffective towards you if you're tuning me out. It's not ineffective towards you. In fact, Romans 2 tells us that this you sitting under hearing this is storing up for you more and more and more wrath in the day of wrath. So please, I want to encourage you, please, it's very important. Listen to me. Are you a part of the purified people of God? Or those that will be condemned in judgment? The purified people of God. How do you know if you're part of them? Think about those four ways that he is purified. He purifies the record justification. You can't see that. You can't see your record. He, he purifies our hearts, regeneration. You can't see the new heart. You, can't, you couldn't see. It's, not, it's, it's invisible. You couldn't see that moment when the old heart was taken out and a new heart was given, a new spirit was given. You couldn't see it. Glorification. He purifies us finally. You can't see that, but what can you see? You can see sanctification. Listen to me. All those who repent and put their hope in Jesus, they put their faith in Christ, every single one of them, he who began a good work in you will complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. You will enter into a process of sanctification. So that's my question. Are you a part of the purified people of God? Can you examine yourself and see God is sanctifying me? I'm now perfect. I struggle with sin, but God is moving me forward more into the likeness of Jesus. Now, I do praise God that as I look at my brothers and sisters all around the room, that I can say it is obvious that God is doing that with so many of you. And for you, I just want to encourage you. Praise God for that. You once were in the category of judgment. You were in the category, category of headed to eternal judgment and hell forever. But God yanked you out of darkness, brought you into light, and now he's purifying you as his own daughter or son. Are you a part of the purified people of God? Or, please examine yourself. Are you a part of those condemned to final judgment? Now, I want you to beware. Listen, back to our passage. Something you might not have seen yet. Beware of this. There are a lot of people that are in the category of headed to eternal condemnation. And they don't realize it. Do you understand that? That's why I want you to listen to me, especially if you're tempted to tune me out. Listen, there are many people that think they're okay, and yet they're headed to right now 
eternal judgment. And I want to prove to you that that's the way these people were in Malachi chapter 2. And we see it in verse 17 through 3 5. Think about 2 17. Their question is, where is the God of justice? And that question tells us they don't see their own sin. They think the God of justice is going to show up and they're going to be okay. But are they? Are they going to be okay? Look at verse 5. He says, then I will draw near to who? The very people asking. The very people saying, where's the God of justice? God says, I will draw near to you. And he mentions their sins. I will draw near to you for judgment. They say, where's the God of judgment? God says, I'm coming soon. And you don't realize what you're asking for. You don't realize what you're asking for. Now, if you look back at verse 1. Look at this in verse 1. The Lord, that, that second part, it says, and the Lord, listen, whom you seek. Why does it say whom you seek? Are they seeking the Lord? The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Are they seeking the Lord? The next place says, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Are they delighting in the Lord? Are they delighting in the messenger of the covenant? Why does it say this? Here, here's the idea. They are screaming, let the, let the Messiah come. Let the Lord come. Let the messenger of the covenant come. Let him come and bring justice. But they don't realize what they're asking for. They are lost and headed for hell. And they don't realize it. God says, you delight in the coming of this one. You're asking, you're seeking the coming of the Messiah. But you don't know what you're asking for. There's a similar situation in Amos chapter 5 verse 18 where Amos says this. He says, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light for you. You see, these people were lost on a track to hell. And yet they're, and yet they're longing for the day of the Lord because they don't know what that means for them. Amos goes on to say they're like somebody who ran away from the lion and they thought they got away and a bear met them. And then they ran away from the bear and they thought they got away. They leaned against a wall and a viper bit them and they died. That's what they're like. They think it's going to be okay. They think they got away and they didn't. We see the same thing in our New Testament, don't we? In Matthew chapter 25, verse 1 through about 13, you got the parable of those 10 virgins. And some of them were ready and some of them thought they were ready. And some of them were ready and Christ came back and they entered into that door with Christ and the door was shut. And here come the rest. And they called Jesus Lord. They say, Lord, Lord. And they knock on the door. Lord, Lord. And he opens the door and he says, depart from me. I never knew you. Now we call this often, and it's a good title for it. We call it false conversion. We see it in Malachi. We see it in Amos. We see it in Matthew. And because that's what these people are dealing with, I want to encourage you. There's the purified people of God. And there are those that think they're okay, but they're headed for eternal judgment. Eternal condemnation. Please be warned. I pray often. I believe false conversion in our land has been, has been an epidemic in our land. 
And I pray often, God, please uproot false conversion in our midst, God. Uproot it. And we do things, we, you know, the way we do church membership, the way we want to obey God in church discipline, these are expressions of wanting to watch out for false conversion that ruins churches and dishonors Jesus. It, that's expressions of that. We want to do that. But ultimately, it is God. You better pray to the living God. God, if there are any among us, member or not member of this church, if there are any among us that are falsely converted, they're headed to hell and don't know it. Oh, God, uproot it. Save their souls from death. Don't let them die. And so I would encourage you to pray with me about, about that issue. So just in closing here, summary statement. Justice will be ultimately satisfied. The message of the covenant has come. He's purifying the people for himself. And he's going to come again to judge the world. And to which category do you belong? Purified or the judged? Please walk away taking that question very, very seriously. Let's pray. Lord, we exalt you as king. You are King Jesus. Lord, we exalt you as God incarnate. Amazing miracle that you, God, would take on flesh. We exalt you, Lord, as the messenger of the covenant. Thank you, Lord, that you sealed our salvation with your own blood. That you satisfied the just wrath of God with your own blood. Thank you, Lord. That you risen from the dead. That you invite all who would repent and believe to be a part of your people. God, we worship you for such mercy. And Lord, I do, I want to bring this other, this issue before you, God. This, these people that thought they were fine. Lord, they thought they were okay. And yet they were headed for hell. God, I pray that you would, you would help us, God. You would purify your church. God, that, that you would rescue any sitting in this room right now. That you would rescue the falsely converted. Open their eyes, God. God, don't let them be deceived. Don't let them deceive themselves. Lord, you told us to be doers of your word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. God, I pray that if there are those here that are only hearers, that you wouldn't allow them to be deceived, God. Please, open their eyes to see. And God, I lift up this church to you. Lord, let us be, let us be your purified people for the glory of your name. Thank you, Lord, for so many here that you've saved and are purifying right now. In Jesus' name, amen.